everyone, welcome to the Behold Podcast on the Genre Equality Channel. My name is Hitzer. Ah, uh, my sir. Uh, this week, we have a very special episode brought to you by one of my favorite streaming services out there, Mubi. Um, you may have uh, recalled me, Isa, and as well as Hadi, talked a little bit about Mubi on the last episode of Behold. Mm-hmm. But if you're unfamiliar, let me let me catch you up with what makes Mubi special. You know, if, if you've never heard of the streaming service before, you are in for a real treat. You know? <laughs> it has um, an expensive but not overwhelming collection of movies um, and all the features that make the platform seem more like a film community uh, rather than just a simple collection of classic cult and art house titles. And it makes the platform a must-have for cinephiles like us mm-hmm. and cinephiles like you or those who just want a curated list of some of the best films out there. Um, you know, like on other streaming platforms, like when you're looking for the best movies on Disney Plus, yep. Amazon, Apple TV, or Netflix, you you will find libraries that are catered towards everyone from diehard film fans mm-hmm. to more general audiences looking to kill a few hours on a weeknight watching a rom com from the nineties. You know, movie on the other hand takes a more specialized approach to its film curation and offers the best of the war of cinema. Um, that you know that you can find anywhere in the world, from African cinema to European cinema um, to Asian cinema, um, and it specializes in cult, forgotten, or art house titles that you will not find anywhere else on any other platform, unless of course you know you have a, a Criterion subscription and you have you know a bunch <laughs> of DVDs on your shelf. Yeah. Uh, but let's face it, you know nobody even has a Blu-ray or DVD player anymore, so this is your best option uh, for you Gen Zs out there who don't want to have you know any physical media. Um, it introduces its subscribers to a lot of hidden gems, a lot of forgotten classics, as I, mean, mm-hmm. uh, um, as I mentioned. But that doesn't mean that Mubi doesn't encourage exploration. Quite the contrary. When I signed up for the service, I started browsing the various categories that it has. It has various video essays as well, um, educating you, enlightening you about you know, what you should check out next, you know, things that I've never heard of. Uh, one of the coolest features of movie is something called the Film of the Day section, which introduces a new title to the streaming library every day of the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, these new editions range from movies released within the past couple of years to those going back decades and more than half a century in some cases, you know, from movies from the 40s and the 50s. Each of these movies come with descriptions, trailers, information on the cast and crew, articles about the film's significance and other commentary so they have op-ed on there as well it's not just bam here's the title go watch it they have yeah. context the um articles um it's an all-around experience you know it's it's like being um it's not just like a, a repository for art house and classic and cult films it is a community in itself it educates you and there's so much to love about movie um movies available in singapore as well so if you want to give it a shot Please sign up for a movie, um, and it comes with a seven-day free trial. So if you're not happy with movie, um, you can cancel within a week at no cost to you at all. So why not give it a try? Mm-hmm. Um, I think of all the streamers out there, this um, offers some of the most exclusive niche content that you won't be able to find anywhere else. And I highly recommend that you give it a shot, like, at least for the next week or so. Um, that being said, though, since this episode is brought to you by Mubi, we thought we'd do a special episode of Behold, just dedicated to films that you can find on Mubi. And we've decided to wrap this whole theme around by spotlighting classic French films. Uh, firstly, we'll be talking about one of the oldies and one of the bestest mm-hmm. uh, in French New Wave cinema, The 400 Blows, all the way back from 1959 by the legendary François Truffaut. Um, alongside Jean-Luc Godard's Masculine Feminine from 1966, mm-hmm. René Lelou's Fantastic Planet from 1973, and a bit more recently, and by recently I mean like <laughs> over 30 years ago, uh, Christoph Kowalski's Three Colors Trilogy. Yeah. Uh, let's begin though by talking about one of the godfathers of uh, French Nouvelle Vogue, or French New Wave as uh, we... Uh, West, uh, <laughs> as we like English-speaking people call it, um, 
And and this is, has been this particular title is is my introduction to François Tufrost. So I thought this would be a good gateway for many of you listeners out there as well. Um, it follows a young Parisian boy by the name of Antoine Dronel, uh, played by Jean-Pierre Lyot, uh, whose life is one difficult situation after another. He is surrounded by inconsiderate adults, including his neglectful parents, uh, played by Claire Maurier and Albert Remy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Antoine spends his days with his best friend, René, trying to plan for a better life. Um, they have cooked up a lot of boyhood, childish, get-rich-quick schemes. And when one of the schemes goes awry, Antoine ends up in trouble with the law, leading to even more, conflict, uh, more complex conflicts with unsympathetic authority figures alongside unsympathetic parental figures. Uh, so let's get into the 400 blows. I don't believe you've seen this before my recommendation My recommendation to you, Isa. Oh, no. Um, what do you think about this, this very uh, lyrical tale of a young boy who's left without attention and delves into a life of petty crime all the way back from 50s French cinema? Yeah, um... Uh, I think the first thing that kind of struck me is how many scenes and how many kind of like uh, um, how many scenes and how many like different parts of this particular film were seem very typical of the uh, French New Wave, right? And I was curious about yep. that, so I started going to read up on the film itself, right? And it mm-hmm. seems that the Four Hundred Blows was the one that set the tone for a lot of what came after that. Um, mm. And I was pretty much the template. Yeah, so it became the template of that. It is a beautifully shot film, right, in black and white. Um, mm. And uh, because it decides to focus so much on the young Antoine, right, it really lingers uh, for a long time on this young actor's, uh, you know, facial expressions, his response to a life that basically keeps beating on him, and uh, all the little kind of like small character directions that he ends up taking, right? Uh, and, of course, finding out later on that this is the first in five films uh, of yes. which we get to watch this exact same character played by the exact same actor um, mm. in other films and stuff like that really kind of like uh, picked me up. And it kind of set a, an interesting uh, perspective for me, right? Like watching this particular film and how it ended in particular, which I'm sure we'll get to uh, at yep. the end. Uh, of our discussion, um, for it to be like kind of a consideration, for it to be a lot like, oh no, what's that film? Was it Boy Boyhood? Boyhood, uh, Richard Linklater. Yeah, yeah, Richard Linklater. Yeah, so this way before that, um, basically essentially the same um, mm. kind of concept, but over five films instead of um, just one. Mm-hmm. Um, so very uh, taken by just the style and the almost languid expression of the cinematography uh, as it goes through and we follow the poor... But I don't really know about poor Anton. Uh, it's a lot of things I think uh, I needed to kind of like fill in. It comes across upon first viewing as extremely charming in its own way of the struggles of this young man as he tries to make something of himself, right? Uh, against yes. like the odds that he's kind of put against, in particular, the system at school, you know, a mother who isn't interested in his existence, uh, a stepfather who, you know, has his own concerns, right? Um, yep. And his furious refusal to kind of give in, right? To any of those things uh, that kind of like brazen... Uh, rebellious nature of his is extremely charming and at once heartbreaking, right? And uh, all of that makes it um, really compelling to follow within this particular film. But I found myself mm. drawn to uh, eventually later on finding out how autobiographical the film actually is. Uh, yes, actual, himself. Yeah, yep. and and that you know, it it's one of it's one thing to be taken by like the art form itself, right? But then to be informed later on by like its inspirations and where it plays itself within the context of of, of French film, uh, and and the filmmaker's own history itself, um, really kind of became a deep dive for me. Just kind of like reading about all of those stuff and like trying to look mm. for interviews and things like that. 
Yes, yes, exactly. You know, as as you mentioned quite eloquently already, this is a semi-autobiographical film, as hard as it is to believe, you know. Yeah. And the story of Anton Donnell, if you read about Francis Truffaut, mirrors him quite a bit. Uh, a troubled adolescent who is constantly up to mischief. And as you later pointed out, Donnell would become a reoccurring feature <laughs> in Truffaut's extensive filmography. Yeah. Um, with many, many other feature-length films depicting his story, culminating in 1979's Love on the Run. Um, so if you want to catch the entirety of uh, Anton Donnell cinematic universe, shall we say, <laughs> uh, you can watch all five of them um, alongside The 400 Blows. Um, the key to all five of these films, specifically this one as well, is Liot's performance, which is spellbinding, and it's remarkable to think that he was just 15 when the film was released. Mm -hmm. um, the lead actor excels at selling the nuances of Donnell's character and his dissatisfaction at home, which leads him to cause trouble for himself. So much of the film's potency relies on Liut, and he manages to capture the joys and difficulties of growing up. And you could tell he is an alter ego for Truffaut himself mm -hmm. and clearly harks back to the director's own troubled youth here we can see glimpses of what led to Truffaut's own love of cinema with a big screen proving to be um, escapist entertainment for Antoine. You know, This yep. is what Truffaut would have been if cinema hadn't saved him, the story of Antoine Dornel. Um, as with many French New Wave classics, as you also mentioned, The 100 Blows captures the, well, I would say the trademark of what French New Wave <laughs> is, the hustle and bustle of Paris, yeah. um, as well as its beauty and mystery. The film cinematography is both visually arresting, yet also kind of murky. It captures the post-war city and also a lingering sense of gloom in that post-war city. You know, um, it was a this was a beautifully realized film mm. in terms of cinematography, yeah. um, and in terms of how it looks and how it moves. You know, uh, it's, this is it, it, it's just about over ninety minutes, right? And yep. Just under I think the font, yeah. just under 100 minutes, right, right. And I think it, in just that short frame, it managed to capture a clear sense of character. Not the character of just Anton Donnell, but the character of Parisian roofs in the late 1950s. <laughs> um, and for a movie that was released over 60 years ago, like you said, The 400 Blows remains strikingly current, and you can see many modern coming-of-age films in the decades since owe it a huge debt of gratitude. Yeah. Um, if you watch anything uh, recently from, like you mentioned, Richard Leggett's Boyhood or Kenneth Branagh's Belfast, mm. they all feel heavily indebted to this, you know. Um, it's no slur against those films. It's just that, you know, um, this film was clearly the, the template, the boilerplate for uh, for all, everything that came after, um, Fresh New Wave included. Yep. And this film has lost none of his potency. It's full of Im imagination and emotion and most importantly, it is superbly acted. Mm -hmm. It's all the more re remarkable considering this was Truffaut's debut film. His first of many and perhaps he could never quite escape his shadows, you know, because, you know, he, keep, he kept making films about this particular character. Yeah. Although, I would argue that his later works such as Jules at Gym or day for night uh, might be superior uh, to certain subjective circles. Mm -hmm. uh, but nothing that Truffaut has released subsequently had quite the same impact as the 400 Blows, and it still retains much of its prestige, transcending the time that it came from to stand out as one of the finest French films of its era. Uh, what do you think? Oh, man. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I I mean like I'm I'm not as quite as well as in French cinema as I would like to. A lot of that <laughs> were things that were recommended to me, much like much like the the films that um in this particular list. Uh, but you can see very clearly, I think, uh, that Four Hundred Blows is something that has been fairly impactful. I was just reading stuff as well about how um a whole bunch of like incredible directors uh say they all look a kind of debt of gratitude. And have been inspired by that, you know, um, with Kurosawa Absolutely. and um, Ling Later himself, Woody Allen, and all of that. Like all of them have all mentioned Four Hundred Blows at one point in time or another in, as something being influential in their career. 
Uh, I mm. am really interested to go and watch the other four films, I guess, <laughs> within this, uh, this um, what would five be? Pentology? Um, yeah. Uh, Pentology itself, and definitely to check out all the rest of Truffaut's stuff, because I am not at all familiar with um, his uh, entire filmography. Um, I would recommend Jules at Gym as, as the next thing to follow, although it doesn't follow Donnell mm-hmm. specifically. Yep. Uh, but I think that is his best film, although his most challenging film to get into because it is an astounding six hours long. It is actually Ooh. meant as a miniseries, but it was compiled into a film. And I think I actually think it works better as a film than as a miniseries, although it requires a lot of patience. Okay. Um, but yeah, if you want to catch up on the what I like to call my DCEU, <laughs> the not. The Donnell Cinematic Extended Universe, you can go watch all five films featuring this particular main character, starting with the 400 Blows on movie as well. All of them will be available on that particular streaming service. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, that was it for the 400 Blows. Uh, one of my favorite French New Wave films of all time. And going from one French New Wave legend to another, mm. um, talk about impeccable or bad timing or good timing, who knows, just timing in general. Next up, we're talking about Jean-Luc Godard and his film Masculine Feminine. But before we get into that, I'd be remiss if I did not mention that on the day of this recording, just a few hours prior, three hours prior, uh, the legendary French filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard uh, passed away mm-hmm. at the age of 91 uh, due to old age. And I guess this is as good a time as any to talk about one of his more iconic works. Um, but before that, I mean, I want to talk about Godard in general. Yeah. I think he is... Uh, a film of Altior, uh that is par excellence, perhaps one of the biggest names of French New Wave, yeah. and he has steadily been making genre-defying, thought-provoking works of cinema since the 1960s. Uh, few filmmakers can claim to be as adventurous mm-hmm. um, as he has been, with the stylistic and thematic range of his work being as diverse as, as it comes, from the pop art sensibilities of his work in the mid-60s, like uh, Priero Lafou to his volatile political films of the early 70s and the increasingly abstract projects that followed, Godard's movies are simultaneously recognizable uh, and impossible to pin down. Um, if each of his release- releases are unpredictable, he still retains a trademark style that has gone on to influence multiple generations of filmmakers. One can easily see Godard in film obsessed. In, in the film obsessed genre blending of, say, a Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. um, or the subversive rule breaking of Martin Scorsese, or Jim Jamush and his uh, unapologetic hipsterness, <laughs> or Wong Kawai's hyper stylized aesthetic, it all comes from Jean Luc Godard. Mm-hmm. Really, it would be hard for any contemporary filmmaker not to be influenced by Godard, even if indirectly. Uh, but the work of Godard itself is inimitable, especially during his first decade as a filmmaker in which he made an impressive 15 features in seven short years, which is why he was called the Enfant Tarabelle of French cinema. He worked with a consistency that didn't sacrifice quality in favor of quantity. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of one or the other, Godard chose both uh, and made during this time some of the most influential works in all cinema. You know, um, he... It felt like he never stopped to breathe for longer than a few months. And his complete body of work is undeniably intimidating. Uh, just to begin with, just for you guys, I think we'll begin oh, with one of his more iconic films. Yeah. Uh, it's called Masculine Feminine. It is uh, one of my favorites of his. Have you ever seen any... Before I get into Masculine Feminine, yeah. have you ever seen any of uh, Godard's work? Yes. Uh, I am familiar with... Just a handful of them. But I think the three that stood out most to me was Breathless. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Breathless was like, you know, his first work. Uh, it was my first introduction to him as well. Uh, one of those things that you kind of had to kind of watch, um, you know. Uh, and that was like kind of the beginning of the new wave, right? Uh, of French yep. New Wave. And like immediately, much like 400 Blows, became like uh, one of the the outstanding kind of like templates uh, for the movement mm. itself. Uh, Band of Outsiders as well. Uh, yeah. I've seen I, ha- I haven't seen uh, Masculine Feminine. Uh, then mm-hmm. for his later stuff, I did see his version of King Lear because I was studying King Lear at the time. Uh, and I was just looking for like kind of like sources 
for adaptations mm. to kind of like draw inspiration from and so on and so forth, uh, which was a very kind of interesting take on the, the Shakespearean uh, classic in the French New Wave style. Uh, and I think the other one was... Um, oh, I can't remember what the last one was. Yeah, but essentially not a lot of his a lot of his earlier work and not so much some of his later work. Um uh, mm-hmm. what was it called? No Notre Music, is that it? Yes, I think that might be it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so much, much later, um in two thousand four. Yeah. Yep. So there's a whole bunch in the middle here that I, I haven't really seen. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean he his uh, like I said, it's an intimidating body of work that he has. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorites, of course, is Masculine Feminine. Mm-hmm. And his exploration of youth culture in the mid-1960s, I think, is as lev- uh, as revelatory as it is incisive. And this, is, in this particular film, continues to fascinate with its uncompromising depiction of a generation torn between the tawdry allure of rampant consumerism. Capitalism was starting to be on its rise in that particular time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and alongside the major political concerns of its of, of the day of the nineteen late sixties and early seventies, um, Goddard's portrait of what he terms the quote unquote Pepsi generation is a complex and astute social document which shows how an increasingly politically aware youth mm-hmm. was beginning to conflict with the all too easy acceptance of American pop culture. Um, it is he kind of has this uncanny prescience. Masculine feminine anticipates the dramatic events of 1968 and the youth-led cultural revolution that would change the face of the Western world in the following decade. Uh, controversially, though, Goddard presents the schism between the proto-revolutionaries and those who have sold out to consumerism as just the latest manifestation in the eternal divide between the sexes. Hmm. Um, this is a controversial theme in the film because he portrays the boys as revolutionary intellectuals. They are whistling bark and composing poetry when they are not busily occupied spray-painting anti-American slogans all over town. Meanwhile, the girls in the film are self-centered or politically naive uh, and are just out for a good time. Um, it is easy, I think, to condemn Goddard for resorting to such simplistic demarcation, mm-hmm. but I think he's just using it to effectively get across the fundamental dichotomy of youth culture in the mid-60s. Um, there's this divide between an over-eagerness to embrace American culture in all its facets, set against a burgeoning political conscience. Uh, this was the fiery cocktail that will give rise to a powerful counterculture movement on both sides of the Atlantic later on, just a few years after this film. Um, high ironic that a film that has so much to say about the young should uh, end up being given an NC-18 certificate mm. uh, in France, which is very unfortunate because the demographic that it was targeted to was not able to watch the film, uh, which is why it probably did quite, it fed poorly in, in the box office. Mm-hmm. Um, it dared to breach the sacred middle-class taboos of, birth control and abortion and things like that, you know, all the issues that you couldn't talk about in the 60s. Um, the two sides of the pro and anti-American cultural divide are represented in the film by two charismatic young actors. Once again, <laughs> Jean-Pierre Lioud yeah. is uh, in a, he's, he's the face of French New Wave, yep. um, alongside his co-star Chantal Goya, uh, who now appear to be Right now, like at least the person- personification mm-hmm. of 1960s cool, mm. you know, uh, as we already talked about after his impressive debut, uh, H15 in the 400 Blows, Leo will become the actor who is most emblematic of the new wave of French cinema, yeah. um, a phenomenon which was itself the vanguard of France's post-war cultural revolution. And Leo epitomizes the Nouveau Vogue's idea of rebellious youth, and would be pretty well typecast as the romantic anti-bourgeoisie rebel for much of his career. Mm -hmm. Um, Goya, by contrast, was the archetypical 60s babe, um, a sort of a year-year girl who would have a successful career as well as a pop singer, uh, renowned for her children's songs and twee pop songs. 
Uh, just as Liot's character represents wholesale rejection of Americanism, be it um, imperialist adventurism in the Far East, you know, like um, Vietnam War, or the intellectually stultifying intrusion of pop culture, Goya depicts the mindless acceptance of all things Americans uh, to satisfy the French youth's baser instincts, the need for comfort, and the idea of prosperity and the pursuit of happiness and things like that. The mutual incompatibility of the film's two main characters, uh, Liu, who is the pretentious rebel, and mm-hmm. Goya, who is the consumerist slave, their inability to communicate even when they are in bed together or they're having conversations together provides the films with its best running gags. You know? But it also serves as a typical Godardian dialectic to examine the consequences of France's own fractured cultural identity as American influences begin to assert themselves in the 1960s. Um, the film also ends with Godard's most chilling commentary on the dehumanizing influence of capitalism. You know, um, Having given a completely emotionless account of the death of her boyfriend, um, a death she, we, which we suspect she may have caused, mm-hmm. a Madeline played by Goya considers the prospect of an abortion with what appears to be complete indifference. Uh, what Godard whimsically, whimsically refers to as the children of Marx and Coca-Cola, um, a conflicted generation of capitalism and socialism, uh, having no notion of the old values, will tear itself inside out over the coming decade as it seeks to reconcile its political concerns with its addiction to American-style capitaliz- capitalism. This is a subject the director addresses in many of his films. You know, um, The composition or cinematograph- cinematography of Masculine Feminine is almost as daringly innovative and provocative as a subject matter. Godard is as good as Truffaut in, in that manner, and although he is very different from Truffaut in terms of narrative, mm. uh, Godard almost never does conventional narrative form and instead constructs the film from 15 self-contained, loosely connected vignettes. So it's not so much you know 15 vignettes that tie together, but 15 snapshots of use at that time. And for much of the time, the camera is trained on one character who gives partially improvised responses to questions asked by another character off camera. This is a familiar Godardian device, which at times makes the film feel like a serious sociological study of young people or a full documentary. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the non-scripted answers that Godard records are genuinely shocking, and it shows a degree of self-absorption and political naivete that no screenwriter would would dare put on paper uh, through fear of being condemned or resorting to blatant caricature. Uh, the only reason it works is because it feels so true and because it feels so unprompted. Mm. Uh, Godard's use of sound is also just as interesting. Um, you know, familiar sounds like the tap, tap, tap of typewriter keys are amplified to sound like bursts of gunfire, creating the impression that a bloody revolution is taking place just out of camera range through the typewriter underscoring the cultural conflict taking place on the screen and in the minds of the protagonists. Um, there are also other more, other more far, far more stylized sequences. There are quirky excursions into Godardian whimsy, which shows us the grim, violent underbelly of Parisian life that is totally unseen by bourgeoisie eyes. Um, in one scene, a woman chases her husband out of a cafe and thereupon fires a gun at him in the street after an argument. The only reaction this provokes from the supposedly politically engaged Paul is an irritated appeal for the woman to close the door after her. This, the film's best anti-bourgeoisie gag resurfaces when Paul, Paul is told he must use Le Figaro, uh, which is a notoriously right-wing newspaper, mm. as a substitute for toilet paper, the only use it could possibly serve in a left-wing-oriented household. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a lot of political commentary uh, going on as well as crude digressions into the darkly surreal uh, and the invariably amusing out there as well. Um, everything else is just, you know, background noise. You know, there, there are uh, um, unflattering cameo appearances from Bridget Bardot mm-hmm. and Francois Hardy in, in this film, uh, sort of meta-commentary on celebrity in French cinema and of that time as well. Um, so of all of Goddard's political films, of which this is one of the earliest, Masculine Feminine is perhaps the most multifaceted and engaging. Mm. It may not be as coherent as some of the director's later political films like La Chinoise or Weekend, um, but it has that 
unmistakable mix of nouvelle vogue poetry and archaic playfulness, which makes it one of the most digestible and stimulating offerings from Godard's intellectually challenging middle period. And I think perhaps no other film by Jean-Luc Godard captures the spirit of the 60s mm-hmm. and hints at the turbulence to come more than this witty and insightful piece of social commentary. So uh, if you want to catch Masculine Feminine and Godard's other works, once again, all available on movies, so you can check it out there. Uh, next up, though, let's move on to the 70s now mm. to talk about Fantastic Planet from 1973. This is a surreal, animated sci-fi fable of extraordinary beauty, cruelty, and strangeness. Um, it used to circulate widely in the VHS era mm-hmm. uh, when it was recognized as one of the most important animated films aimed at adults. Uh, in the DVD era, it's been more pro- it was more problematic to get a hold of. Yeah. Uh, later on, of course, you know, with Blu-ray and Criterion and streaming, it became a lot easier to get a hold of Fantastic Planet. Uh, so... You've seen Fantastic Planet only recently as well. Could you yes. give us a little breakdown of the premise and what do you think of it? Well, um, so upon upon uh, assigning me to watch a, a Fantastic Planet, I went to, I'm going to go and Google it really quick. It is strange how um, something that I've never actually seen visually, it was mm. immediately recognizable as something that I remember from before mm. right but I, I uh, it the art style and like the character designs are so visually unique that it was hard not to have once seen it on the cover of I don't know someplace right and, and it could have very well been you know me as a child kind of like walking through a video store and seeing that on a poster or somewhere of the sort um Mm-hmm. But essentially, the entire premise of it is uh, imagine, imagining a world in which uh, human beings are not the main uh, dominant species, right? Uh, on the yep. planet Yigam, uh, humans who are called Oms, as a pun on the, uh, the French word for uh, man, uh, mm-hmm. live on a world that are dominated by these gargantuan blue humanoids called drugs. Um, mm. and uh, who are basically a hyper-intelligent, hyper-technologically uh, advanced um, race who uh, use treat humans basically like pets or pests, depending on how you, um, what their philosophical kind of like disposition is. Uh, and that's kind of like the main kind of central premise of the conflict uh, and resolution within the story itself. Um, so we follow a uh, we follow one particular Ohms uh, who eventually gets the name of Ter uh, and his kind of journey in uh, uh, as being a pet of the drugs or one particular drug as well uh, and coming into knowledge that allows him to lead a kind of revolution of its own. Uh, and the Ohm's kind of like fascination with the orbiting moon around the planet again, uh, which is known as the Fantastic Planet, or to be more uh, accurate to the translation, the Savage Planet uh, itself. Uh, there's a mystery therein that they try to uncover, which brings eventually uh, the Ohm's who escape there into conflict with the drugs and the eventual kind of resolution uh, for them to have a basis to live at peace with one another is my very humble submission of this incredibly trippy um, animation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, what do you think of it overall, uh, being the first time you've seen it? I think, you know, a lot of some of the more absurdist or trippy animated films from the 90s, 2000s, and 2010s, or some of the stuff from Adult Swim takes a lot of of influence Mm. from the Fantastic Planet. Absolutely. Uh, I think, like, the... It's... It is so. Um, I I watch a lot of animated stuff, right? Especially stuff in the last like twenty years or so. Whether it be you know any sort any kind of uh, animation that's coming out from the the Western sphere or more specifically anime, uh, which I find yeah. myself spending a lot of time with. Uh, the Fantastic Planet, even then, continues to be absolutely visually unique in its. Uh, coloration uh, and just in the way that the animation is done, right? So what they did because they had to do it on a buck uh, was to interpose these uh, basically illustrated paper cutouts, right? 
on yep. these uh, painted backgrounds, right? Giving it a very kind of almost flat. There's no sense of like depth if, if um, to, to each kind of like visual scene as you would find in like the comparable animation of its time, say from Disney, for example, you know? Uh, so all of that and like the extremely kind of striking colors, the drags themselves are these like huge blue skinned, uh, fin-eared monstrosities with large bulbous like red eyes, right? Like it's vaguely yep. humanoid and all of that. But it's a striking symbol and them being shapeshifters as well leans into this whole kind of like amorphous, um, uh, psychedelic tone of the film. I mean, it is a product of its time. Um, and all of that adds to this strangeness um, stacked on top of a situation or circumstances that feel extremely familiar and universal to the human context, uh, which I found uh, extremely interesting. Um, uh, the soundtrack uh, in particular struck me because a lot of it sounded really, really familiar. And it was only after uh, watching the entire film, going to find out who did the soundtrack and all of that, and recently found out that it the soundtrack is uh, famously very popularly sampled by hip-hop artists, including Dilla yep. himself, including yeah. Mad Lib and all of that. And I was wondering why like so many pieces of the sound design and the soundtrack itself felt familiar in a, a very odd way, right? Given that I had never seen the film itself um, overall. Mm. Uh, it, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so it was, it was kind of this, it was again a strange familiarity with something, with a, what is essentially a cultural touchstone that I've never um, experienced for myself, only through like the, uh, the its influence within other media that I have have consumed. Um, so that was super interesting, uh, as as kind of like a late uh, being late to the game as far as Fantastic Planet goes. Um, yeah, yeah, its messaging, I guess, in this day and age, might feel a little on the nose perhaps it mm. is clearly ale allegorical right like it's obviously mm. allegorical and it can be applied in so many ways whether it could be talking about racism whether it can be talking about animal rights right but the mm. truth of the matter that there is within like the fantastic plan a very obvious kind of like power dynamic between what is a superior race and what is not uh you know mm. the comparisons between the drugs being kind of like these uh almost more zen-like, almost more meditative, intellectualist uh, society yep. and the the savage cunning of these humans who 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 are just persistent and refuse to die, right? Or refuse to give up. Uh, uh, even as they are kind of like put through the grinder against plans of like an entire sort of genocide to get rid of these, you know, these ompests so to say mm -hmm. um, you know yeah. there's so many kind of like interesting parallels there that makes Fantastic Planet uh, relevant even for our purposes today right um, which is is I think a testament to uh, its storytelling and the way that it has allowed itself to speak to the universal relationships and, and politics of both its time and our time as well uh, it's a strength that is definitely um, like I would recommend someone would watch this today just because like there's something to be learned out of that uh, as well. Um, unfortunately, uh, I only managed to really kind of get into it in the English dub of the entire thing uh, because mm -hmm. um, and I found it fairly interesting because this there were still subtitles as well and the choices for the dub and the actual uh, translation. Uh, as in the subtitle translation, had some interesting differences of uh, opinion, should I say? Uh, yep. That was kind of like a, a super interesting, kind of like a, a little chewy in terms of like, oh, why did they choose to do that in the subtitle? But they decided to right. do something else in the dub as well. Um, okay. So that just stood out as like really, really kind of like um, interesting to me, right? Like uh, I'm, I'm curious as to how much is kind of lost in translation uh, or uh, the nuances that, that were there in the original kind of like French script that I 
I, I was missing between like the two translations that I was uh, um, experiencing while I was watching it itself. Mm, mm, yeah, I, I agree with you as well. Like I had um, a certain dissonance also watching the the the, the subs and the dub. Yeah. Uh, shall we say? Um, I don't think I can add anything more than what you've already said about the Fantastic Planet. Mm-hmm. It's a, actually a very, very short film. Yep. It's easy to watch. It's very trippy. And <laughs> the intellectual power of the film is very simple. It has a very simple story and a very simple idea. Yeah. The simple device of subjecting humans to the treatment of which mankind subjects animals to. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, It's just a very simple allegory and, and you can read what you want out of it. La. Like you said, animal rights. It could be about war. It could be about Imperialism, it could be about totalitarianism. Yep. Uh, so much it can be made about it, but you know, uh, the beauty of it is up to your subjective interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Fantastic Planet available on movie. Just one of the many great French classic <laughs> films that you can f- find on movie. Uh, finally, and we're talking about not one, not two, but three films mm. in what it's called the Three Colors trilogy, uh, by. Uh, French slash Polish filmmaker Christoph Kielowski. Um The Three Colors trilogy is actually two French films and one Polish film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it comes to you, like I said, from the mind of Kielowski alongside uh, a co-writer. Uh, oof, I'm going to try to pronounce his name. Chris Christoph? Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I don't know. But yeah. yeah. Uh, Kielowski and co-writer dude Great job. Um, so, uh, the three films, what makes it unique is that it is not a narrative trilogy, but rather a thematic trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, each of the films are powerful symbols, uh, as each of the three films, blue, white, and red, represent the colors of the French national flag. Um, blue stands for liberty, white stands for equality, and red stands for fraternity. And each of the films, like I said, appropriately named blue, white, and red, deal with the issue represented by the color on the national flag. Mm-hmm. Um, so these films are wildly ambitious and like the flag they represent are quite revolutionary. Each theme runs deep in correlating film uh, showcased by each of the film's visuals, its characters and its soundtrack. Uh, but to be properly analyzed, I think the, film, the films must be looked at separately. So let's begin with the first film, Three Colors Blue. The first movie in this trilogy, um, because blue is the first color on the French flag, uh, is the signature film on of the series. Mm-hmm. Um, it is defined by liberty, and the film stretches the word from a political context to a personal one, uh, which you will also see in his other films. Each theme is smartly redefined from the pers- from the political to the personal. It's very smartly stretched in that way. Um, right from the start of this trilogy, uh, Kulowski pulls off one of the most one of his most personal and fascinating films to date. Uh, it is set in Paris. Uh, it follows uh, Julie, who is played by Juliette Binoche, who is suddenly alone in the world after her husband and child are killed in a car accident. Um, freed from the bonds of her family, she attempts to cut herself off from the rest of the world in her grief. She no longer wants human connections. She realizes, however, that the idea of personal liberty is much harder to attain than originally thought. Uh, the radical idea of Julie's wish uh, would make, I guess, French revolutionaries stop in their tracks because this is a very different idea of liberty. Um, for a viewer like me, watching Julie go through the motions of trying to cut everyone off and be by herself is scary, but it's also infectious in some ways. You know, um, in the in the early nineteen nineties, uh, it was the pre-internet era, but people were already learning and developing ways to stay more connected with each other. Mm-hmm. And Judy wants to go in the opposite direction. So throughout the film, certain people and concepts desperately try to keep Julie from entering total isolation. These battles between herself and others is tremendously written and paced throughout the film. Seeing the context of or the concept of liberty being presented as an uncommon personal battle mm-hmm. is a fresh way of showcasing this theme in a story. Blue tremendously presents a deeply rich idea that goes deeper than the images being filmed. Um, Music plays an important role in this movie. Uh, Julie was married to a famous composer. So with his death, uh, his husband's uh, magnum opus entitled The Unity of Europe is left to be finished. Her husband's music partner, Olivier, wants to finish the piece. 
but because of Julie wanting to disconnect from the world, she would not let this happen. Um, as she fights Olivia to stay away, her past becomes much more prominent, stalling her wish of being alone forever. So music becomes the main symbol of this personal struggle, specifically a musical piece uh, that is designed to unite Europe against a person who just wants personal liberty. Um, music is a physical example of how humanity works as well. Mm-hmm. Music cannot be played by... I mean, music cannot just consist of one note. Oftentimes, it cannot just be played by one person. There must be multiple notes, multiple people, in, in particularly this orchestral piece to create uh, this tapestry of music. And music eliminates the fact that humans must communicate and work together to successfully live an idea that Judy desperately wants to ignore. Uh, like all three films, Blue is also beautifully scored, mm-hmm. uh, and, beautiful, and Blue's soundtrack is great as well. Um, color is the important visual aspect to this film. Blue, as is obvious, uh, is filled with blue imagery and features a bluish tint to the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it utilizes blue filters and lightings, blue objects, blue lamp beads. Um, they are all important to the color scheme of the film. And the blue is not so subtle um, and it's very often repeated that your brain kind of just combines all of these visual cues, making the color blue much more noticeable and you relate it to liberty as well because that's the primary theme of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a beautiful, intensely thought-provoking uh, movie uh, and at times very heartbreaking. Um, and it's a fantastic start to the trilogy. Uh, in a drastic change from blue though, the second film, White, is much more active, funnier and breezier than the predecessor. Um, going into this movie, the thought process was simple. I was like, okay, equality is a bit more easily definable than liberty. Mm-hmm. Yet again, though, the definition Kowalski and company chooses to use is quite interesting. Um, we follow an actor, uh, uh, we follow a guy called Carol Carol, played by the actor, I'm not going to pronounce his name, man. These Polish, Polish names are so hard. Uh, but anyways, Carol yeah. is left by his wife, who is played by Judy Delpy, who you might know from the before trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Carol is abandoned by his wife in humiliating fashion. Uh, with no money, no place to live, and no friends, Carol ends up being a beggar uh, in Warsaw, Poland. So he, he used to live in Paris. Uh, his green card is taken away w- with the divorce, so he has to be smuggled back into his home country of Warsaw, Poland. There, he befriends a man he meets in the metro um, and soon begins his quest for equality uh, through, weirdly enough, revenge. Uh, white is much more of a comedy than blue. Uh, perhaps the light, airy quality associated with the color white has something to do with the tone of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the plot is, again, a depressing tale. Uh, being left with nothing after your wife leaves you is a horrible situation for Carol or for anyone. However, the film kind of packs a bit of a weaker punch than, than Blue. Perhaps this is the weakest entry in the trilogy. Um, the shifting from comedic to the depressing tones could also be blamed as well uh, for you know not reaching the same emotional heights or the same tonal balance that Blue has. Yeah. Uh, that being said, though, White is also a very, very good film. Um, it might be the weakest of the trilogy, but I also recommend that you check it out. It's funny, it's breezy. It, it's not as thought-provoking or heartbreaking as the rest, but it presents a nice little breather in between two very heavy films, which is Blue and Red. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, I'm going to talk about Red, which is, in my opinion, the best of the trilogy, and in my opinion, one of the best French films of all time. This was Kulowski's final film. Um, he announced that fact prior to its release, uh, and sadly, uh, Kielowski also passed away two years after the film's completion. Oh, uh, the final film of the series is the only one to get Oscar attention. Uh, it was nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Cinematography. Sadly, it went 0 for 3, although I, my opinion is I've you know, won all three in, uh, of those categories. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I said, Red is associated with the theme of fraternity, right? And the definition of fraternity is, again, stretched to another level than how fraternity is usually understood. Um, Brit deals with characters that have little in common but gradually become closer emotionally and physically to one another, forcing strong bonds among strangers. Um, the lead character is uh, a person called Valentine Dussault, played by Irene Jacob, who is a model who soon realizes that her neighbor has been tapping into the phones of other people around the neighborhood, invading their personal privacy. Um, Red is the climax of the series, and the aspects that make Blue and White stand out as films, the battle with oneself in Blue, 
the action sequences in white are very much more well-balanced in red. The theme of human fraternity is well-paced and shown as the film moves along. What's interesting about Red is the different scenarios where this idea of fraternity can exist. Mm-hmm. Um, Irene meets a man called Joseph Kern after accidentally hitting uh, his dog with a car. Uh, the dog is fine, don't worry. Um, they soon forge a bond that develops throughout the movie. Uh, we see Irene bond with her boyfriend and the photographer she works with. So eventually we see also a bond between Irene and her neighbor Auguste due to Kern's eavesdropping on her neighbor um, Irene initially, initially wants no part of any of this, but her level of interest in August's life rises as she sees similarities with herself and August. Sadly, she cannot reveal to August how she knows all of this because it's through the phone taps of her neighbor. Um, also, Valentine and Kern pose, uh, possess a very human trait. They're just very curious. They're not uh, tapping phones or invading privacies. Mm-hmm out of some malicious intent. They just want to know how they relate to other people because they're curious about someone else. Uh, These interactions between the three main characters are immensely human. Uh, While they're all strangers in the beginning of the movie, all three possess... uh, The the qualities that all three possess humanizes them. Um, It connects their seemingly separate lives. And August and Valentine themselves never meet until the end of the film when both are bought a ferry to England. Uh, without spoiling any of the three films, uh, they are kind of connected with the ending of Red mm-hmm. uh, where, because she meets the protagonist of the other two films right at the end. Uh, but it's in no way necessary for you to watch all three films. Uh, you can watch each of this in a trilogy on its own because they're self-contained stories. And I would encourage you to watch all three though. Uh, and if you want some sort of you know uh, narrative continuity, mm-hmm. uh, then you can watch the the ending scene that they do take place in the same universe. It's not just a thematic uh, trilogy. It's also, you know, tied together by small little plot points here and there. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, all three of these films are great. I don't know whether this is, is exclusively French because one of the films is set in Poland. Yeah, I mean... But, I mean, considering that the theme of the film is the colors of the French flag, mm-hmm. you know, um, and even the, the film that was set in Poland begins in Paris. I, w- I would say that this is this is also a uniquely French trilogy, which is why I'm including this on uh, this week's Behold. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so that wraps it up for all four of the French cult classic films that we'll be talking about uh, this week. Are there any other French films that have caught your eye, you know, throughout the years? Oh, is there anything that wow. we didn't talk about this this uh, on this episode that you would like to maybe shout out? Man. Um... Uh, it could be it could be recent films, it could be older films, uh, whichever. Um, I mean, we've we've already talked about uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, for example, which is oh, a great yes. French film from more recent times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not not in particular. I think though, I would highly. I mean, since we were talking about Godard anyway, uh, rest in peace. Yep. Um, yeah, I would highly recommend anyone who has had to study King Lear and do kind of like Shakespeare and stuff to go and check out Godard's version of King Lear. Uh, it's more yeah. like an essay and a preponderance on the play itself as much as it is kind of an adaptation of the play, which I found like extremely kind of interesting because it applies what we would we would now regard as kind of like a, the the typical kind of like French New Wave. Uh, lens to a Shakespearean tragedy that up till that point I had never kind of seen before uh, and that yeah. to me was just like super fascinating um, as someone who was studying Shakespeare at the time um, you know so that really kind of stood out to me as well um, yeah recent French films nothing really comes to mind have we reviewed anything outside of Portrait of the Lady on Fire uh, recently, I don't think so. But yeah, I mean, I, there are a few like iconic films that I we haven't mentioned at all in this episode mm-hmm. that I would like to shout out. I guess. Um, yeah. Um, some of them are very, some of them are very very old. Um, a silent film that I really really love yeah. is The Passion of the Joan of Arc from nineteen twenty seven from a long time time mm-hmm. ago. Um, of course, I think this one requires no help from us. Uh, but Amelie oh, from two thousand one, yes. <laughs> uh, is is quite iconic. Um, what else? Oh yes, um, Agnes Varda is a 
French fil- a female French filmmaker that you should keep an eye on. Yeah. What do you mean? What do I mean? Keep an eye on. I mean, she's had like a sixty-year career. She doesn't need any help from me. Um, she's a legend of the game. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite films from her is Cleo from Five to Seven. Also available for movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's from nineteen sixty-two. Um, one of my favorite French films of all time as well. Uh, finally, got a shout out Lahine. Mm. Uh, from nineteen ninety-one. What makes Lahine different from the rest of the films? Well, it follows, um. Three kids who are Jewish, Arab, and black, respectively. Mm-hmm. Um, shot in black and white. It is very much like French New Wave, but it, it gives you a point of view that no filmmaker from the 50s, 60s, or 70s would want to give you. Yeah. Uh, the fact that this was filmed in 1991 makes it all the more shocking because I first watched it in 2016 during the height of the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the film centers, centers around these three youths who are just aimlessly walking around the streets making trouble as the streets of Paris erupt in riots because an, an Arab kid and a black kid had just been brutally beaten by the police yeah. uh, for no reason. You know. um, these three kids go around saying that they want to get revenge on the police, but really they're kind of aimless. They don't really want any trouble with the police, but they buy a gun, they lose a gun. Uh, they get caught up in the riots. They get caught up with gangsters and drug dealers, you know. Um, and all this happens within the course of a day. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like it's a real-time film. Um, and it's one of my favorite uh, French films of all time. In fact, I would say Lahine is my favorite French film of all oh, time. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, Lahine is not available on movie, which is why I'm not including yeah. him on this uh, episode. Uh, but if you do have a chance, please go check out Lahine as well. Have you seen Lahine by, by any uh, chance? No, I have not. Uh, oh, actually, I oh. just recall. Uh, most recent French film that I've seen is actually a Marvel, not original film. Mm. Yeah, which which I caught uh, in in conjunction with our review of a Marvel the TV series. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. yeah I, f- I forgot all about that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I saw your. I think your mic went back to your laptop speaker. Or your desktop speaker. Anyways, as you're fixing that, uh, let's move on though to September recommendations or what's making us happy from the month of te- September. This is the section where we talk about some of the random films, TV shows, books, music that we've read, listened to, or watched uh, over the past month that's been making us happy. Um, I guess since Isa is still fiddling with his mic, uh, I'm going to begin uh, with a movie that will be out in Singapore cinemas in a few days' time, this coming Thursday, uh, on the 15th of September. Uh, I managed to catch a preview of it on the, at the projector. Uh, it's called Munich Daydream. It is a very impressionistic, experiential, and glorious documentary about the creativity and career of David Bowie. So for you Bowie fans out there, uh, go and catch Munich Daydream out in cinemas, it will be out at Shaw, Cafe, and The Projector. Um, over on the TV side of things, I would like to recommend Mo um, on Netflix. That is M-O. Um, it is made by comedian Mo Amir, and who is a Palestinian, Palestinian slash American comedian uh, who you may recognize as uh, one of Rami's best friends on the show Rami. Uh, but Mo has his own show on Netflix right now, and it is the biographical life story of Muhammad Amir uh, and the life that he has, had, he has had for two decades when he started to live in America. Um, it's a semi-autobiographical biographical look um, at his trauma of displacement. Um, for those who don't know, uh, Mo Amir's family was forced to leave home and travel to another part of Palestine in the 40s. And then when he was born, they were displaced, displaced again to Kuwait uh, when uh, you know, Palestine came under bombardment from Israel. Um, and then in the 1990s, during the Gulf War, they were forced to move again as refugees, this time to the suburb of Houston. Um, yeah, so this is a story about Mo, the comedian, uh, his traumas, and some of the humor that he finds in the more mundane uh, absurdities of the American legal system because he has been seeking asylum for 20 years now and only finally got it. So yeah, this 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 comedy finds uh, tragedy and humor in his family's tale, uh, and he explores the wounds and the trauma of displacement in a very nuanced, unusual way that you might not see from many other uh, TV shows. Uh, alongside that, um, after a four-year hiatus, 
uh, Atlanta, which just ended season three, I would say four months ago, mm-hmm. is now back for season four this this week. Oh. Um, so yeah, it's fourth and final season of Atlanta. Um, is back this week. Uh, and as much as I'm excited to have two uh, two seasons of Atlanta in one year, it's also a bit sad that after waiting four years, Atlanta is going to end uh. almost as soon as it began. Uh, again, so but I, I'm I'm psyched for season four. Donald Glover hasn't gone wrong yet, in my opinion. Season three has been a bit controversial, but hey, I love the anthology format of it. I think as did you as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, uh, recommending this uh, coming out on the 16th of September. Season two of Lost as Spookies is back on HBO. We actually talked about Lost as Spookies a couple of times. Once on quick hits on genre equality, mm-hmm. and once as a feature on the Behold podcast. Uh, if you don't know what Lost is Spookies is, it is almost impossible to uh, give you the premise of it. Basically, it's a reverse Scooby-Doo following four goth weirdos in a fictional Latin American country who have such an affinity for the macabre that they try to turn it into a business by faking supernatural scares for other people. But they don't do it in a malicious way. Like, for example, the premiere episode of season one, which we all have seen, um, is about uh, uh, an older priest uh, who wants to upstage a younger, hotter priest by uh, doing a fake exorcism. Um, so they hire the Lost at Spookies team to stage uh, a, a, a fake supernatural encounter and things like that. Um, it's very funny. It's very weird. Uh, go check out season one if you haven't on HBO Go, which is a streaming service in Singapore, or HBO Max if you live in America. Uh, but yeah, season two premieres in three days. Mm. Uh, what about you, Isa? Anything you caught this month? Hello, testing. Am I back? Is it still soft? Uh, it's still soft, but I guess we're at a home stretch already. It doesn't quite matter. Uh, you, okay. you, you're still coming through. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, stuff that I've been watching recently that has brought me joy. Uh, Chef Table is back with a new season, this time focusing uh, six episodes on pizza, one of my favorite foods. And I, it's been a joy to kind of watch and see all that. Um, so that's one of the big things that I've been watching that have been pretty fun. Uh, also... Mm-hmm. Uh, just catching up on anime and stuff, uh, the second half of season five of Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, where we follow Jolene, uh, has recently come on board. It's on Netflix now, if you want to catch up. Uh, that's also been pretty mm. fun as well. Uh, it's been interesting watching like the first kind of female protagonist that we've ever gotten from the Jojo series uh, and seeing yep. where the kind of differences lie in terms of like their characterization and stuff like that. Uh, so I, I, it's it's been pretty good so far, but it's JoJo stuff. If you love JoJo, it's more of the same with a slightly different spin. Mm. Uh, I've been having a lot of fun with that as well. Uh, outside of that, just um, keeping track of uh, all the interesting things. She Hulk. Um, yeah, more or less. Uh, have you been watching the the two rival high fantasy shows that are out at the same I, time? I have and I have thoughts but we will discuss those thoughts at an appropriate time uh, for sure uh, I, Appro- yes yes, yes it, two time. genres from yeah, now two genres from now yeah. we will definitely do a deep dive into that I still think where we are at the moment is a little too early to actually is it too early I'm not sure we're almost halfway there for some of them um, so we'll see, right, where it goes. But again, like I think it would be only be fair to do a comparison, if a comparison even is fair, uh, about yep. how they do and kind of like how fans have been responding to it and all of that. It is impossible to get away from any sort of like spoilers slash conversation slash uh, quote-unquote discourse that's going on about the Rings of Power and House of the Dragon. Uh Interesting. I mean, the, the, the main, the, yeah, the main discourse are that, you know, weird, toxic fans out there who are upset that there are black Targaryens and black elves. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. So, so what? But okay. Yes, I, I uh, find it so difficult for yeah. you to go on, look guys, there's dragons, right? They're fucking dragons in yeah. these worlds. You can believe that there are dragons, but people of color are not, come on, just whatever. Yeah, I mean, there are orcs, uh, there are also dragons in Ring of Power yeah. and, you know, evil sorcerers and dwarves and shit like that you know so why can't they be black it's a bit weird for that to be the sticking point but okay that being said though it's hard to separate the criticisms of rings of power that are legitimate from the more racist vitriol out there 
because I have been able to watch, I suppose, three quarters, no, not three quarters, two thirds, I guess, of Rings of Power. And I've been able to see two thirds of House of the Dragon. And I do have to say like two thirds in two Rings of Power, it is, I'm not liking the show. Uh, I think it is, it's just an objectively not good show. If you take out all all the other things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And House of the Dragon has the major benefit of being a very mediocre show that is in competition with a very bad show, which makes it look very good. <laughs> yeah, and I also think a lot of it has to do is that we are coming off for a ho- uh, hot day, as we've, we've taken, to, uh, yep. taken to calling it here at G. Uh, a hot day yeah. has the uh, amazing uh, um, kind of advantage of being compared to the last season of Game of Thrones, right? Also, yeah. 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 So, like, it's not... Like, the bench isn't benchmark isn't very high, which is unfortunate. Uh, but I think there's yeah, kind of good things and bad. I think performances all around for Hot Day have been pretty solid. Uh, performances mm. for Rings of Power have been mixed. Let's just put it that way, right? Uh, Definitely, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure if it's a direction thing or, you know, it's a writing thing. Uh, and I guess time will tell and we'll spill all of that. Uh, for mm-hmm. our monthly wrap up of all things genre in two months time. Uh, two months time though. But for the next episode of genre equality, we'll be delving into uh the later season of what we do in the shadows. Uh, and in my opinion, mm-hmm. I think the strongest season of what we do in the shadows. <laughs> um, plus, uh, me and Hardy will be talking about Harley Quinn. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll also be talking about the latest season of Primal season two, which is take some really big swings yeah. uh, out there. Uh, something that it, it has episodes that I never thought that they would do in se- from season one. Yep. Uh, season two is really a really adventurous and expands the world of Primal. So I'm eager to get into that as well. Uh, plus, we'll be talking about Shin Ultraman, which premieres in Singapore next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're excited to catch that as well. Isa brings back Anime Corner, where he highlights the best anime of this current season. Yep. Uh, I'll be looking back at one of my favorite space operas of all time, Babylon 5. Uh, Quick Hits has a bunch of really, really terrible titles. Um, <laughs> the new Pinocchio is one of the worst things I've ever seen. Uh, Cyberpunk Edge Runners might be worse than the game. Yeah. And that's saying something. Yeah. Uh, Hocus Pocus 2, I've not seen it yet, but hey, nostalgia, <laughs> why not? Um, so yeah, um, I guess that wraps it up for this week's Behold. This has been Hit Zero. Yeah, Goodbye, guys. Yeah.